Welcome to the Globe Trotten ADs. This podcast is for you, athletic directors, activity coordinators, coaches, and program associates based in international schools around the world. The Globe Trotten ADs is proudly hosted by Nick DeForest from the American International School of Vienna and Matt Fleming from the American International School of Budapest. Here they are now, Nick and Matt and the Globetrotten ADs. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Globetrotten ADs. Today, we're going to t- continue our series of the topic of responding to abuse in sports. Uh, the, the episode we're going to talk about today, the topic is concerns all forms of abuse that can occur in families or sports programs and how coaches are often first responders to abuse as they often notice signs of abuse or are told about it from their athletes. A primary focus of our series on this topic is to bring further awareness and links to assist school-based professionals. So today we are honored to have our special guest, Dr. Jordan Greenbaum. Dr. Greenbaum is a physician from the U.S. who works with children who have experienced physical or sexual abuse, neglect, sexual exploitation, or sex trafficking. Her home base is the Children's Hospital in Atlanta, but she also works for the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, providing training and education regarding child maltreatment to professionals globally, and developing programs to increase awareness of child sexual violence and exploitation. We just want to give a reminder to folks also, a safe space reminder, that we are talking about very sensitive topics concerning abuse, and the conversation may be explicit. There are likely to be listeners who are survivors of childhood abuse or supporters of survivors. It's okay to feel strong emotions. Please take care of yourself. Uh, listeners can learn more about childhood abuse signs and indicators at how to respond and how to respond when you suspect abuse at the ICMEC website. That's edportal.ecmec.org. So now I'll turn over to Nick. Yeah, thanks, Matt, and welcome, Jordan. Uh, it's really great to have you here. Thank you. Just to get us started, I know Matt just gave a great uh, introduction there, but maybe you could just briefly talk about uh, ICMEC and and what you do with them and bit more about your role. Sure. Thank you. Um, yes, most of my role with ICMIC or the International Center is to provide training to healthcare professionals, educators, and others who work with children about child sexual abuse and uh, exploitation as well as other types of abuse. Physical abuse and neglect are big. Um, and then I work to try to uh, develop programs in different countries to help increase awareness and improve response to child maltreatment. Okay. Wow. And do you, do you travel around the world with them, or are you just really stay in Atlanta and, and work remotely? Fortunately, I, I do a lot of traveling, although that has all come to a grinding halt with COVID. But, sure. <laughs> um, I, I used to do a lot of traveling and hope to, to do so again in the future. Okay, great. Well, um, as we did at the last episode with, with Lori, we're going to kind of highlight a case, um, and the case today is uh, a St. Mike's uh, College in Toronto. Um, we're just going to play uh, kind of a short uh, introduction um, from ESPN Hidden Horrors, and we'll put the link in the bio, but just about a 30-second introduction that'll kind of kick us off. In my time, hazing was the wedgie pool. I don't understand how it goes from hazing to full-blown sodomy. They're using their fingers, they're using broomsticks, they're using pool cues. These are kids. 
15, 16 year old young boys. You're not supposed to forcibly do that to somebody. This has ruined his life. Yeah, St. Michael's College. It's um, a private Roman Catholic school in Toronto. There's about a thousand students in middle and high school. And they just have a, a great reputation for uh, academics, but also athletics. Being Canadian, living in that area myself, uh, I know about their hockey team, as most people do. Um, they have almost 100 people in the NHL from um, hockey hall of famers, uh, all of many ages. And it's a really a long athletic tradition they have there. I've played against them in my time in high school, uh, been in that rink, played a few times with them. So when this uh, story hit the media and the, the worldwide media, uh, I definitely took notice um, because of the connection and, and, and their history. So just a, you know, a bit about the case, we'll, we'll go through the timeline. It's, you know, I think we could talk hours about it, but it, it's, it's a bit um, overwhelming, of course. It was November 12th, uh, 2018, when their head of school uh, received an anonymous video showing a middle school student um, surrounded by others in a locker room uh, with his head being dunked into the water in a sink. And the students look like members of the basketball team. So that evening, he expelled three students that were identified um, in a second video that he received, also anonymously. Um, in the second video, the student was uh, being sodomized with a broom handle, a very explicit video. And it was clear that there was multiple middle school football players in the video. So the next day, the head of school met the students and their parents that were involved in that second video. And at their request, uh, he agrees to keep everything quiet. Um, he's informed by another school, though, that the video is being shared. So now it's outside their walls. And the students committing the offense in the second video are expelled. Uh, he schedules an assembly to talk to the whole school about it, and he actually actually calls the police to ask them about that first video in the sink, um, just to see if it could be a crime as well. He doesn't talk about the second video, uh, but the police are they discover the second video on their own um, from the media, so it already uh, hit the media, and then I, I guess it turns into a bit of a mess. Um, to put it lightly, you know, the press are at the school gates. The parents are demanding answers. Students are harassed to and from school. And he goes on national television, the head of school does. And basically he says that, you know, he was just, he didn't report it because he was following the request of the parents. Um, obviously the head of school, the principal then resigned. Uh, boys were ar uh, arrested and ultimately sentenced um, to probation and community service. Uh, the boys in question, because of their age, weren't, weren't ever identified. They're two or 16 years old and one was 15. So clearly many, many lessons to be learned uh, from this case, um, but we're talking about it really because of the victim's behavior. So this school had victims of both physical and sexual abuse with many witnesses, but even after it was reported, parents asked the school not to report the case to the police. So Jordan, we wanna know, is this, is this often the case that people do not wanna have abuse reported? Um, and if so, how, how can we know that it's happening if it's not being reported? I think that it, that it, it does happen fairly frequently, that people want to protect their children and uh, protect the reputation of the school and sort of wish it would just go away. So they don't want to necessarily take the official steps and call the police. 
Um, the problem, of course, is that there may be other victims who are being victimized or future victims. And if we don't do anything, uh, then the other people may become um, endangered as well. And it sends a message to the victim that this doesn't matter, that we don't care, uh, which is a very negative, powerful message we want to avoid. So there are a number of reasons uh, that the, the, these incidents do need to be reported, but also um, common reasons why they aren't. And this wasn't a, you know, a standalone incident. It was, you know, bullying and, and hazing, right, in this athletic atmosphere. Yes. Um, so is that more common to keep to keep it quiet because of the, let's say, tradition of this hazing? I think in some cases it does, that does play a role, certainly. I think it's, you know, it depends on the case, but certainly long traditions and sort of an accepted culture of uh, violence and tolerance of that make it easier to look the other way. In your experience of working with these victims, do you, do you think there's a trend in the states, maybe perhaps that traditions such as this might be going down or is this uh, continuing on or what, what's your take on the current status of these types of hazing incidents in the, in the U.S. or in North America? That's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. I think that a lot of it is not reported and so it's hard to know what the true prevalence is and what the trends might be over time um, because I think it is very much underreported. And that's a lot of times because the victims are, are scared to come forward or is it, um, what do you think is the reasons? I think, um, again, it's multifactorial, but fear of the, of the victim of reprisal if they come forward, uh, shame, um, bullying, um, they're concerned about what's going to happen to them, to their family, um, what the future holds. They have no idea what the police would do. Uh, if anyone will listen, uh, distrust of authorities, all of these reasons may be um, playing into a, a child's decide, a decision not to come forward. And then, you know, the parents have their own concerns about uh, the child and views of what they want as well. Right. So the, in the St. Mike's case, the three boys, uh, they were involved in that second video, um, the sodomizing of the other uh, middle school student. But the first video... Um, that actually the head of school wanted to find out more about when he called the police uh, where the boys were being dunked uh, in the sink or the boy was being dunked. Um, that's also considered abuse, I guess, a different... Abuse or assault, yes. I mean, it's, you know, they're intending to uh, scare and potentially cause harm to the child. It's a very dangerous thing to do. So, yes, right. I would consider that right. abuse or assault. So it seemed like that was uh, overlooked, obviously, when the second video in the... Yeah, more graphic uh, incident uh, appeared, yeah. but yeah. looking through the lens of a coach, maybe or, or a, a person in a school, because uh, often coaches, of course, are trusted adults. Uh, and this is, I guess, we're trying to get towards indicators, um, and because coaches would likely be the ones who would see signs of abuse, perhaps, or teachers or folks in the in the school, um, other professionals, aides. Um, other and other people working in the school. Could you kind of walk us through the signs and indicators of physical abuse and, and what, what, what are some signs that folks might be looking for or what to, what could be some of the things that might see? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think for physical abuse, um, injuries may be obvious and the types of injuries that we, that concern us are those that are in normally protected areas of the body. You could argue and, uh, that any active child, especially a school-aged child, can get bruised anywhere with play and especially sports and stuff. So they can get bruised anywhere. But um, 
no matter what the age is, you tend to bruise less frequently in certain areas of the body, like the neck, for example, or the chest and abdomen are, um, they can be involved in accidental trauma, but much less likely than uh, the bony prominences, such as the knees and the shins and the forearms. Uh, so when you see bruising uh, on the torso, uh, especially the chest, abdomen, buttocks, genitalia, uh, the clusters of bruises on the upper arms that may indi indicate uh, that child's been grabbed very hard, um, bruising on the front or back of the thighs or the inner thighs, these are all areas that are generally more protected. And so um, if a child does have bruises there, it sometimes is helpful just to say, hey, you know, I notice you have a, a big bruise on your belly, what happened there or something, and just you know, see, see often if it's an accident, the child says, oh, I was tackled by da da da, da. and they can just give you the, the history. Um, so it's the location of the injury that's concerning in some cases, and also another type of uh, injury that worries us uh, and is uh, a possible indicator of abuse are injuries that have a pattern to them. So if somebody is beaten with a belt, for example, they often will have long lines of parallel bruises, two parallel bruises running in a line, uh, often on the back, buttocks, back of the thighs. Sometimes they have them on their arms because they try to shield themselves with their arms and so the uh, forearms or uh, upper arms get bruised. Uh, if, if a child is struck with an electrical cord, for example, there may be uh, very uh, narrow parallel lines that, that loop over, so it looks like a loop mark uh, on their back. And often these are crisscrossed because there are multiple blows. Um, uh, burns that are inflicted are more likely to have a distinct pattern of the objects used to burn somebody. Um, so when you notice a pattern to an injury, that, that increases the concern about it. And then there are nonspecific signs uh, of uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse or really any kind of trauma. And, and those are much more subtle. Um, a child can have changes in behavior, for example, become much more aggressive and start bullying others because perhaps they're beaten at home. Uh, they may become very socially withdrawn uh, or um, they may start using drugs or alcohol, have differences um, in behaviors, uh, start hanging out with different friends, for example. And these are all non-specific behaviors, but changes um, that may alert you to the fact that the child is experiencing a lot of stress, be that sexual abuse at home or at school or physical abuse or something else going on in their lives. Right. I guess change of behavior, also change of, uh, you know, the clothes to try to cover it up, right? If you're playing outdoor sport and it's warm yeah. and everyone usually wears small, short clothes and there's someone with, you know, long sleeves could be a sign. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, or if they, you know, consistently miss Monday uh, on school or if they just were beaten up the weekend and injured the feeling and then they come back and it's up on sleeves on, those kinds of things are, are things to notice. Um, in general, signs of stress and trauma um, can be very nonspecific. There's a lot of reasons for them, but other things to look for are, um, you know, the child's not doing as well in school, for example, or not wanting to play in athletics, um, uh, isolated from friends. Sometimes there are physical signs of uh, stress. Children will complain of pain. I've got a headache. I've got a backache. I've got a stomachache. And next week it's back to the headache. They're always at the nurse's office. That may be a sign of uh, a lot of stress, and that's their way of dealing with it. Uh, some kids will stop eating and lose a lot of weight. Others will increase their, their eating and gain weight. So there's just a lot, or they'll complain of sleep problems. These are all very nonspecific. They could be anything, but the change is what's uh, important. Well, 
because they're not so specific and could be so varied, if we see something, it's got to be important to how we approach a child about it, right? We don't want to scare them away or or make it too easy for them to just brush it off. So, you know, how, how should we best approach someone that we suspect could be a, a victim? Well, let's take an example. Suppose you have, oh, I don't know, a 10-year-old um, who, a, a 10-year-old, say, girl, and she's got uh, a cluster of bruises on her left upper arm. Uh, and uh, you also notice in the past she's had a black eye that she sort of shrugged off and didn't say much about. So this is the second time you've noticed bruises on the child. Uh, and this really looks like a cluster of bruises, like someone grabbed her really hard. Um, so maybe you notice that while she's out in the field playing uh, and you might want to just try to find a time to talk to her uh, afterwards. Uh, so, to, you know, get some privacy, uh, make the, the child feel um, safe. So you might say, well, let's go for a walk or let's go sit over here, you know, near the benches uh, so that other kids are not listening. And just say, you know, I, I know she had some bruises on your arm. Do you remember how those happened? Um, and she may say, oh, you know, it was nothing. Uh, and then. Uh, I don't remember. And then you might say, um, well, I'm just concerned because they, you know, it's kind of an unusual place. You don't remember what happened. No, I don't remember. Um, and you know, if you talk on, you might want to ask more open-ended questions. How are things at home? Um, uh, how are you doing? And um, you know, sort of open the conversation that way. But you wouldn't want to um, push it. For example, you're not interrogating the child, but just sort of giving them the option, opening the door. And then from the from that point, what would be a suggestion you would have for the next steps? If 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 because yeah. you know yeah. there's I know in our school we have certain protocols if we suspect abuse uh, to take it forward to the administration and they'll, they'll take it from here because um, you know every country of course internationally has different laws in in regards to abuse but in general what would be your suggestion for next steps forward? Well, let's go back to this case. So um, we've got a child with kind of suspicious looking bruising. We don't know that it's inflicted at all. We don't know it's abused, but she's sort of shut down on us, is avoiding the question. We're concerned there's a prior injury. I think that altogether, that that raises my concern that there's possible abuse. I don't need to be certain that she's been abused. I just need to be concerned about a reasonable suspicion. So that would make my next step be to report to the child protection officer at your school, whoever that may be so that you can tell them about your concerns uh, and they can decide what next steps would be. They would probably want to talk to the child themselves. Um, yeah. They may, depending on the laws in your country and what might happen, really depends on, will influence what happens next. But it's your job, you'd want to um, take it to the next level. However, I would not do that without telling the child because we want to be very transparent about it. So let's say she's shut down. I don't really want to talk about it. Is there anything else I want to go? Um, and then I would say something along the lines of, you know, I'm concerned about those bruises. Sometimes when I see bruises like that, it's because somebody has tried to hurt a child. And so I'm worried about that. I'm not saying that's happened, but I'm worried about that. And because I'm concerned, I need to uh, talk to, you want to say the specific person, I need to talk to Mr. Joseph um, so that he can help me to help you. Uh, the child may very well say, I don't want you to tell him, forget it. No, 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 no. don't tell him. Uh, and you would still have to tell. Um, and you can be very calm and say, I understand uh, you don't want me to tell him. Can you tell me why uh, Why you don't want me to, to do this? Let's talk about them. So you're getting them to open up a little bit more. Uh, and then you can follow up by saying, I understand. I know this is really hard, but I am obligated um, 
by policy and also because I'm concerned about you that I need to, to notify Mr. Joseph. But I don't have to do this alone. Let's you and me decide how we're going to do this. This way you're giving control back to the child. You say, how do you want to do it? Would you like me to go tell Mr. Joseph? Would you like to tell Mr. Joseph? Or would you like us both to go tell Mr. Joseph? That way you're saying to the child, here, you're going to work. We're going to work together. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to work together. And that gives the child some semblance of control. I think that's really important. It also shows the child a lot of respect on your part um, because respect and this sense of empowerment for a child is really critical. So that was, would be how I would handle that. That's, that's great. That's great advice because I think that is often the case where the, uh, a student doesn't want to say anything, right? But what if we get to the, yeah. you know, get a student or uh, someone we know that, that does tell us, they do come out and tell us, um, do we need to be careful of how we, you know, answer the child right away? They've just opened up to us, told us something maybe really horrible. What should we, you know, not say back to them or to? Yeah. Well, I think there are several things to do and other things not to do. As a first responder, you've just heard this. You didn't plan this. You had no idea it was coming. It's blindsided you. Um, you'll probably panic a little bit. But what you can remember to do is your main role is to support the child. Um, so you don't want to act mortified or panic-stricken, but just sort of take it in and say, I'm really sorry this has happened to you. Thank you for telling me about it. You're acknowledging them, you're acknowledging their feelings about it, and you're respecting them, saying, thank you for telling me about it. You're not in trouble. I'm really glad you told me about this. It's the right thing to do. Um, so you're assure, reassuring the child, providing support. Um, if they want to talk about it, I would listen. If it's clear to you that something, um, the child has been abused, uh, there's no question in your mind you're going to take this up to the next level. You don't need to ask a lot of questions. I would not um, ask more questions um, unless you absolutely have to. There are a couple things that you need to be able to decide on immediately as a first responder. One is, have I learned enough to let me know that I'm concerned about abuse? And the scenario you just gave me says, yes, the child opened up, told you something horrific. We don't need any more questions on that. The second question to answer in your mind is, is this child going to be safe in the next half an hour or hour? If they've just told you they've had the, the jeebers beaten out of them by their father, it's at the end of the football game, dad's waiting in the parking lot to take them home, that's a high-risk situation. But if they're telling you about being sexually assaulted at summer camp three months ago by somebody who's a stranger, that's different. So we need to ask, are they imminently in danger? And the third thing is, do they need immediate medical attention? Are they bleeding? Are they in pain? Um, those three things uh, are really the questions that you have to ask yourself as a first responder um, and then provide support. What we don't want, a couple things to remember not to do is, uh, if you can at all help it, is um, start blaming or shaming. What were you doing behind the gym where you got sexually assaulted? Why were you behind the gym in the first place? Or what were you wearing? Uh, or, or why did you go to that party? Uh, so we don't want to say anything that would, the child can take as blaming or shaming. Um, we also want to try, and this may be hard for you, it's hard for me for many years to do it, but we want to try to um, accept the perspective of the child. So if you have learned that uh, a 15-year-old girl in your class has had sex with a teacher, you can see that's totally inappropriate. But the child probably doesn't see it that way and may feel like they're in love with the teacher. So it's not, as a first responder, we're not going to say, are you kidding? He's abusing you. This is exploitation. Instead, we say, you know, tell me more about this. And, you know, this is what I need to do. We accept their position uh, on it um, because that helps to build trust and not alienate the child at this point. Somewhere down the line, somebody's going to need to talk to them about that. But as a first responder, that's not the time. 
So, so I have a question about, you know, kind of getting back to that idea of when you first suspect something, you know, you become the first responder. It's about trusting your gut, right? And going with your gut instinct. Yeah. So and that's, sometimes that's easier for educators to do because they just, they're familiar with working with kids. They know when something's not right or not wrong or right or wrong. And I guess what I'm trying to say or ask is, do you have any strategies for, or some advice for folks to maybe help them trust their gut or to, to make sure they're sure about taking it forward? I think that trusting your gut, I think trusting your gut is a really good, um, it, it's a good rule to follow. And what I used to do for many years when I was evaluating a lot of children for possible physical abuse is I would have, say, a child in the emergency department. I was talking to them, looking at their injuries, and I would say to myself, am I going to go home tonight and worry about this child? And if the answer is yes, then I need to make That's sufficient concern for me that I need to make the report. And some of it's going by gut. You just sort of step back and say, my overall impression is something isn't right here, and I'm going to worry about this. If you're going to worry about it, you have enough to go to the next level. You're not saying this child has been abused. You're not condemning the father, the mother, anyone else to prison. You're just saying, I'm worried about the safety of this child. Somebody else needs to look into this further. So that's that's kind of the advice I would give. I, it always worked well for me. <laughs> I take a breath, gather your thoughts. What, um, maybe maybe a bit off or, or out of your your day-to-day, but when we so we've we've kicked it up we have a concern we can't you know i need to tell somebody um you know we kick it up to the higher up at maybe our individual school at what point do we go back to them and see if anything's been done you know because i would i would kick it up to the you know the supervisor the child protection officer but i would still worry uh, what are they going to do about it so you know is there it, I, I guess it might be hard to answer but is there a set time when we we go back for follow up are we do we because we've reported this, do we should we get follow up, or could they say, you know, it's in our hands now, don't worry about it? I think that'll vary with the school and with the child protection team and how they feel about it. I think it's certainly uh, reasonable to want some follow up so that you can know how to support the child. Um, if you find out that the child has been is still in the home where they're getting beaten, that's going to that's going to affect how you're going to act with the child and things that you know. So you need to know that. Um, uh, or other outcomes may be very influential in deciding how you're going to interact with a child. So that can be helpful. Um, I think it's really important to um, let the child protection team know if you have additional information over the ensuing days or, or weeks that, that, they think, that you think would be helpful for them. If you notice some other things, you forgot that you, that you noticed another bru- bruise on this child six months ago, bring it up and let them know. I think it could be, um, in, you know, in, in our international worlds, you know, when, when so many families move every year, um, it, yeah. it's pretty hard. I still think back to kids, you know, from 10 years ago, man, you know, I wonder what that family's up to now or where are they or how did that situation yeah. end up? And you, you just often yeah. never, you never get an answer or you can't. Yeah. Stuff. I think that's one of the really hard things about this work is that we don't get the answer in so many cases. Is there a, a specific approach when uh, a, a kid is very, you know, clearly traumatized or someone is traumatized from their abuse? Um, is that is that different? It, In providing support? Yeah. I think there are ways that you can support the child. Once the disclosure has come out, they've, they've told somebody that they've been sexually assaulted or, or beaten. 
um, that's just the beginning of the trauma for them. Uh, if the police, for example, get involved and there's an uh, investigation, uh, there may be a medical evaluation, lots of things are happening. Uh, if the alleged perpetrator was somebody in the family, it's going to disrupt the family completely. Right. So a lot is going on in this child's life, and they may start um, uh, behaving differently as a reaction to all that stress. And so it's really important for you and others um, to be very supportive of a child. Um, one of the things that we tell parents when we are seeing children for suspected sexual abuse is that I think one of the strongest predictors of recovery for the child is whether or not that child has a, a strong supportive adult in their life who believes them and supports them. Okay. If they don't, recovery is a lot harder. Okay. So hopefully that person is gonna be a parent, but it could also be teachers and coaches. And so being very supportive sort of looking out for them, um, taking into consideration that their sudden changes in behavior, they're acting out, they're, they're failing tests, they're not doing well in the field, may be related to their trauma. Um, it, it, those are all things that you can do. You can also try to um, help brainstorm with the child um, what some possible triggers may be for their anxiety. Let's say a boy was sexually assaulted behind the gym, and this happened at lunchtime two weeks ago. The history's come out, police are involved, child's still in school, the alleged perpetrator has been expelled. The child is going to have some periods uh, and um, circumstances that are going to provoke a lot of anxiety. You might be able to say to him, you know, let's think about this. Are there any times during the day or places during the day where you think you might get more anxious than others? Well, probably anywhere near the gym is going to provoke a lot of anxiety and lunchtime. So the child says, lunchtime, I hate lunchtime. So then you say, okay, let's think about where you can be at lunchtime where you can feel safe. Is there a place you can go where you can eat lunch and you can just feel safe? Uh, if in the middle of class you have an anxiety attack, what can you do? Can you talk to the teacher and maybe go to an office and feel safe? So you're trying to plan out how are you going to help them soothe themselves when they get really anxious. Um, and I think that helping them understand their own triggers and being able to sort of calm themselves is really, really helpful. That's a big thing you can help them do. Yeah. Getting back to the idea of the, you know, the road to recovery. I know every kid's different, of course, every case is different, but is there, maybe you can give us an idea of what that, what does it look like the, the road to recovery and somebody, once they've gone, the, the, the reporting has been done, the, the gears are in motion to, to get the child help. How does that go? I guess to yeah. There's no uh, set pattern. It really varies with a child. Some children will um, have immediate symptoms of trauma and stress, but then recover fairly quickly. Others will take a long time uh, and may even go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. So it's debilitating, and they really need therapy. In other cases, children may seem to do fine. We've had so many parents will say, oh, she's fine. He's fine now, no problem. I know that this happened, but you know, she's doing well. She's in school. She's, she's getting A's. Everything's fine. And that may be. The child may be coping and very resilient at that point. Um, but it's also possible, and it sometimes happens, that down the road when there is some sort of an event, maybe the anniversary of the assault, or people uh, when they move to a new environment or the child enters puberty, some big event may trigger a lot of the trauma symptoms. So in the future, they may become depressed or develop PTSD. So it's really hard to tell. And I think it's important to tell parents um, that they have to be very flexible and they cannot expect their son, their daughter to recover in a month or six weeks. It may be a long time. 
And there may be uh, periods down the road when the symptoms come back of the stress and the anxiety. You know, all uh, our listeners are, are, you know, in different countries all over the world. Um, but sure. so this may be hard, but is there some kind of percentage uh, or are there some data that you can tell us about uh, abuse in our populations, like how how often it occurs or different ages? Uh, yeah, uh, within the international school population, I think there's increased risk relative to some of the other populations because for, for numerous reasons. One is that families are so transient, it's really hard to, you know, establish connections. And so they're sort of removed from their support, their family and their support every couple of years. Uh, they tend to be kind of in a bubble. Um, it's also um, a perfect place to work if you are uh, a sex offender and because it's very easy coming in access to kids if somebody gets concerned a little worried about the way you're acting you just pick up and you leave and you go to another country another school very hard to do criminal background checks on multiple countries um, so it's it's kind of um, a, a mixture of risk factors that renders children at, at higher risk um, when we look at sexual abuse and sexual assault, um, if you look across all ages, uh, and uh, not just in international schools, but everywhere, average ages tends to be around uh, nine or 10 or so, um, but there can obviously be infants and certainly sexual assault among uh, adolescents is very common as well. Children who have been uh, victims of sexual violence are at increased risk of a re-traumatization as well, uh, being re-victimized later by the same or a different uh, person. So if the child has been sexually abused at the age of five, they're at increased risk of sexual violence later on in their lives. Uh, and uh, the number's higher, you know, in any doesn't matter where in the world, but from peer-on-peer peer peer abuse to abuse from a family member, is, is one happen more often than the other? Or? I, you know, I think it's um, a, a fairly large percentage. It certainly varies, um, but uh, a fairly large percentage, it's like 30, 40 percent in some in some areas of sexual abuse or, or assault cases that are known uh, are involve a minor as an alleged perpetrator. So peer on peer abuse. Uh, again, that's only what we know. There's a whole under undersurface of what, what is not reported. Okay. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit. About how, you do a lot of outreach programming and, and curious about how has the, the pandemic affected your work or, or getting the message out there for uh, abuse awareness? It's tough. Um, we've tried to move a lot of our training online for educators uh, and healthcare professionals so that they can access um, and training from their computers, although it's, it's difficult because so much of it is kind of an interactive thing. Uh, it, it makes it much harder than being in person and having role plays and scenarios to talk about. Um, but we're reaching out that way um, and hoping that um, educators who are contacting kids on the internet and doing online teaching can become aware of um, possible warning signs that something may be going on in the home uh, and um, telling them how to respond to that. Uh, is a is a big thing because you never know what you're going to see in the background when you're talking to a child uh, online, uh, or if a child discloses something to uh, an educator. What do you do? What do you say? Um, it's much the same as you would follow in, in real uh, when they're on site at school, but it's a little bit different. Yeah, I think so. We're reaching out in that way. And I think when you see, you know, maybe the older kids, at least at our schools, they're being taught uh, and, and meeting with their teachers you know, through Zoom or another platform. And you can at least see, like you said, the backgrounds, yeah. you see yeah. what room they're in, or maybe yeah. that might be a window that you yeah. never, you never get at school. You know, you don't see what the home looks like. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know? Exactly. Or you hear screaming in the background and realize there's, you know, a lot of chaos in the background. That's, you know, then, then you can you know, talk to the child, even talk to the parents, you know, and sort of see how the parents are coping, offer uh, a resource, talk about positive parenting, that kind of thing. So talking to the parents, talking to the child are very helpful, depending on the situation. Uh, but I think it is, it's a whole new experience for all of us because we don't, you know, I don't deliver health care in the home. So it's, you know, suddenly you, have, you don't have any control over the child's surroundings. Uh, and either do you as educators. And it's very different. Wow. And, and some of the resources, I know there's a section on the ICMEC website that's specifically, uh, you know, a COVID-19 section. Are there some tips for, for, for people in there? If they... Yeah, there are um, a series of short uh, five-minute videos um, talking about um, COVID-19 and the, the sort of educator response, school response to that. And I think those are pretty helpful. They talk a lot about um, what we've been talking about during this podcast, but uh, other aspects of, uh, you know, sort of monitoring online as well and what you do if you suspect something is, is going on and providing resources. There's one thing that I'm wondering if I could just say that I think comes up a lot um, and I think it's important to talk about Zara if I give it Absolutely. A yeah, we're, we're, we'd love to hear us from you. I think that um, in some cases, teachers and coaches have been confronted with uh, children who want to disclose something to them, but they want to keep it a secret. So the question is, what do you do? So I think it's not unusual for, let's say, let's pick a 13-year-old boy comes up to you and says, I need to tell you something. I need to talk to you about something, but you can't tell the secret. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but probably at some point. And so the question is, what do you do? Um, and I, I think it's very helpful to have a game plan in place for that. And what you might want to do is something along the lines of this, not necessarily exactly this, but just something along the lines of sad. I can tell you want to tell me something. I'd really like to hear it because I'd like to help you if I can. But before we get into it, I need you to know that if you tell me anything that makes me concerned about your safety, that someone's hurting you or will hurt you or you'll hurt yourself or someone else, I will need to go talk to Mr. Joseph, the child protection officer, so that he can help me help you. I just need you to know that. And other people may need to become involved if, if your safety is at stake. So just know that before we start. Now the child says, are you kidding? I'm not going to tell you then. You're not going to keep a secret? Forget it. Unless you can keep a secret, I'm not going to tell you. You're panicking now, and it's so easy to say, okay, all right, I'll keep the secret. We don't want to do that. Uh, we want to say, um, you might put it back on the child and say, you seem really concerned about what might happen if anybody else knows. What is your concern? Tell me about why you're concerned about that. You're not asking what the secret is. You're saying, why is it a secret? You're coming back around that way and getting them to open up a little bit. Now, they may, um, uh, and you can talk to them about um, possible reassurance that, you know, that they can get help that way. Uh, ultimately, though, we can't force the child. So if they say, well, forget it, then I'm not going to tell you. Then what you can say is, well, my door is open. I'm always here. I'd like to help you. And I'm here for you if you decide, if you change your mind. Or is there somebody else you can talk to? Um, and then I would, because the child has sort of gone this far, has not disclosed anything, to me that's a very significant thing. I would take that and report to the child protection officer. I don't have a specific allegation, but this child has something that's really right. bothering him. Right. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, I, I did have someone say that to me, but um, thankfully it was just about a girl they had a crush on, um, so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't any any concern. Um, but, That's great. But you know, I did think, well, what's going to come? You dodged that bullet. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
you do never know, right? It's uh, you don't, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't never know. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for this ins these insights today. And, uh, and person, I would just I want to say thank you for all the hard work you do, and uh, you're on the oh. front lines of this of this issue in the in the world. And uh, I just want to say thank you all you do for kids and making the world a safer yeah. place. So, we're, we're oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. And, uh, get, get, <laughs> get more awareness about the topic and, and um, unfortunately it's something that does exist we hope and that it will come to an end at some point but uh i think the more we get we talk about it the more we let our guard down about it to know that or, to understand that it is a real topic and it does happen in schools no matter all over the world international private uh, public it's it's exactly. something that we need to know about so thanks for the insights yeah. today. yeah thank you thanks for having me i appreciate it well, it just didn't seem right to interrupt our conversation today with ad breaks. But before you go, um, please take a second and listen to a little bit about two companies that we really uh, enjoy working with and use often. And thanks. Coach Evaluator is the premier coach evaluation software for schools and athletic organizations and preferred coach evaluation solution of the NIAAA and the Positive Coaching Alliance. The system is completely customizable with an always growing evaluation template library for athletic directors to reference. There are not only evaluations for ADs to use, but also self-evaluations and parent-player evaluations of coaches. Learn more about digitizing and simplifying your coach evaluation process by visiting www.coachevaluator.com. If your school is in the market for bespoke sportswear, look no further than Kukri Sports. Kukri has evolved over the last 20 years from a bespoke sportswear manufacturer into a true sportswear partner, firmly believing in the value of sport at all levels. Kukri Sports creates a sportswear range that inspires as well as performs. Start your journey today. Email the team at contact at kukrisports.com. Until next week, this has been another episode of the Globetrotten ADs.